Well, good evening. Hello, everybody. It's a, a joy to welcome each of you here to the first of this year's uh, Lent Talks. Um, a special welcome to our ecumenical friends who've joined us as well. We're very, very pleased to have you here. Um, so this is the first of six of our Lent Talks, um, and uh, we're looking forward to sharing each Tuesday evening something uh, different. And for those of you who haven't been part of this before, um, this is the fifth, sixth time we've done this. So during Lent, we've given our Tuesday evenings over to inviting somebody um, from the wider church um, to come and share what's on their heart, what their ministry looks like, what they're doing, whatever is within them to share with us on any given evening. So all the evenings look very different. We hear from all sorts of different people. Sometimes it's people we've met before or have been involved in the church. Other times it's people we've never met before. Now, Alex and I haven't met before this evening, um, and I don't think you've been here. No, I haven't. No? Uh, But we found out that um, uh, Alex and I both used to live in the same place at the same time in Croydon, and we just never met. Uh, So it's a very, very small uh, world. Um, So welcome. Um, so we're going to be finishing by, by nine, um, and uh, we'll see how we go. But usually we just begin by um, saying um, hello and saying, so Alex, tell us, uh, where have you come from today to be here? Uh, Ashford, Kent. Ashford in Kent. Ashford in Kent. see, that's not a bad piece of travelling to be here, isn't it? Hello, Janet. Um, and all I know is that... I got sort of a press release sometime a few months ago saying that you'd got a new job working for the Church of England. It sounded like quite a senior job. Is that right? Tell us what it is. What are you doing? So um, I'm the National Director for Safeguarding for the Church of England. Okay. Yeah, it's worth Um, a woo. Yeah, we love that. That's right. It it wasn't always that way. Okay. (laughs) Okay. No. It wasn't always that way because I think my journey was um, I've been a dustman, I've been a dishwasher. Actually, the dishwasher one is a very funny story. So I've got five children, the oldest being 28 and the youngest being 15. So with my soon-to-be 21-year-old, we were driving through West Norwood uh, and I said, our son... I went for a job in there as a dishwasher, but I didn't get the job. And he started laughing. He goes, everyone can wash plates, Dad. How did you get? The, <laughs> how did you not get the job? So I chuckled a bit, and I thought, yeah, maybe he has got a point there. So just, it hasn't always been easy, mm-hmm. smooth sailing in that way. So how do you end up in the safeguarding world? And what, what led you that way? Mm. I think I grew up on a South London estate and there was domestic abuse and my dad was an alcoholic and had a tendency to just be on the estate and make friends with other young people um, that were in similar situations. And I think um, every secondary school I went to, I I got expelled from school, so I, didn't, I wasn't really that way inclined. And I guess I was working in the supermarket, and I met my wife and my sister. They were like, "So, 
Well, I knew my sister. I didn't meet my sister. I knew, <laughs> she, was, I knew she was, but I met my wife, and my wife and my sister were going on about what is it you want to do, and I was like, oh, maybe working with young people, and my sister was like, well, you had a troubled childhood, and actually you've got lived experience, and that actually maybe social work would be a good thing for you. Okay. And that's how the journey started. Okay, so into social work, um, and then up, up through that. And you were working in South End not that long ago, is that right? Yes, um, I think that was uh, 20, so December, no, November 21, I went in there. Um, I think they were on a, an improvement journey. I think it was the second time they got requires improvement. And they were in the process of kind of transition. So they brought me in and I think I left there around June um, last year. Mm-hmm. Mm. Saw them through their Ofsted and then, then kind of left because they appointed someone permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does the National Director for Safeguarding for the Church of England do? Well, you've got, you've got a few days, <laughs> a few Tuesdays. <laughs> can come back. Um, so I think, I think you kind of have to break it down in different stages. So the Church of England is it's quite a complex organization you know it's a really complex organization and you may know from the press that they they not always um, lived up to their safeguarding responsibilities so they've not always done the right thing by people and most of my work is around trying to understand how we can make things better for people and how do we prevent um, independent inquiries not happening again in 20 years time so there's a balance as well around um, when you work for the church it's very different from a local authority so in a local authority it's, it's kind of command and control you know I can say we're going to do this and everyone will be like yeah we, we'll get it done but in the church it's a lot more about trying to influence uh, people to make the necessary changes that, that are needed and then part of my role as well is around making sure that practice, you know, like policies, guidance, training, the awareness that people are aware and that people are doing the right things um, by people who potentially uh, may have been abused or there's possibility of them being abused and we're doing everything we can to do right by people. There's a lot of pain and there's a lot of hurt um, and there's a lot of distrust at times around the, the, the church. So it's just trying to manage so many spinning plates at the same time and, and, and trying to do the right thing by people. And sometimes it's a, it's a difficult situation because the harm has been done and how do you win back that trust that has been lost? Yeah. And so... Is a dealing with sort of is there a bit of sort of crisis management element to stuff as well? The things coming across your desk that are live, um, as well as dealing with the historical things. I think sometimes there are always stuff. There's always cases that that come through, um, um, but there's a lot of historical stuff. As I said before, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of trauma, and it's about trying to get that right balance around engaging the relevant partnership 
to be able to make the difference and holding people to to account um, and that's not always easy sometimes because the national safeguarding team is one part of a wider system so not everything might come across my desk and when it's all said and done to some extent the decisions are not always mine to make so it, it can be difficult around roles and responsibilities and, and making sure people do the right thing by people. So I'm guessing there's, yeah, potential for responsibility to be held in all sorts of different places. I'm imagining each diocese must have a safeguarding lead as well and then where working out where everything fits in is quite complicated. I think it, it, <laughs> the church, the ch- as I said, the church is quite a complicated place at times and, and you've got to remember we've got like 42 dioceses and in 42 dioceses you have 42 bishops. Um, and you have 42 diocesan secretaries, uh, you may have some Suffolk bishops, so it's quite a, a, it's not easy to navigate. And some of the traditions go back hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, um, and change can be difficult at times, even though there are lots of people that want the change, but it, it, it can take time. So you've got 42 diocesan bishops. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask you which ones, when you see an email from them, you want to run for the hills, right? There, <laughs> there must be bishops who are a bit more like that. But have you got any bishops where, you know, you love hearing from them, they totally get it, and uh, you think, oh, great, I love working with them? To be honest, um, I've, I've got to go back a minute. So I, I started the role on the, um, the 1st of September last year. So, so far, I've not, I've not met any bishops that I want to run away from. <laughs> um, you may say it's early days, but, <laughs> but I, haven't, I haven't met any. Um, and I think at the end of the day, whenever I do receive an email from a bishop, I'm kind of, if it's about safeguarding, I'm, I'm happy because then it means that they're, they're coming to ARCs for advice or support or check things out, which is, is better than not them not doing that. Yeah, and just for the record, we love Bishop Gooley. She's great. Very <laughs> happy with, with her. Um, so you spoke a bit about the need to build trust, mm. and particularly where there's been pain. How, how, how do you, would you go about that? What are the priorities for you in building trust? So there's something about, you know, empowering people. There's something about honesty you know, being transparent. There's something about how we collaborate. But the biggest thing about it is, to some extent, you need time because words are cheap. You know, words are very cheap, so sometimes you need a little bit of time to kind of show the results of what you're trying to do. So if you say you're going to do something, do it. If you can't do it, say you can't do it and give the rationale as to why you cannot. Um, And I think for me, it's really about trying to understand people's experiences. You know, so I think it was Nelson Mandela that said it, that why would you, don't try and tie someone's shoe laces if you haven't walked in their shoes. Um, so it's that kind of a thing, listening to people, making people feel they've been heard, 
Um, and being honest about what can be done and what can't be done and apologise, you know, and mean it. What are the, what's sort of the big priority on your desk at the moment? We've got, we've got so much going on, so we've got a really big safeguarding programme at the moment, but I would say one of the biggest things for me at the moment is around redress. So um, financial redress and non-financial redress, um, I think that's really huge. Uh, um, victims and survivors have been waiting for that for some time. It's more complex than I think we anticipated it to be for various reasons. Um, where they have done redress um, in other places, it's normally been kind of government that have kind of funded it and kind of worked with it. But I think this will be the biggest thing any charity has done, as far as I'm aware, with regards to the church doing a, a redress. So that's that's one of the biggest challenges for me right now. And I guess given the size of the Church of England, the, the scale of that is significant, potentially. As you say, bigger than any other charity has done. It's massive because I think off the top of my head there's around 16,000 churches in England alone. So when you think about the, the people that may have attended church that may have been subject to abuse and, and some abuse can, goes back as far as the 40s, the 50s so you don't really know the numbers etc but we know that it, it has to be done and we have to, to do it right as well So knowing some of the difficult things that you know or that you get to know through your work and some of the stories that you hear and have to deal with how do you look after yourself in the midst of that? How do you keep coming back and doing another day when, I guess there's not many days where it's just full of lovely, happy things. So how do you sustain what you're doing? It's not easy, especially on a Sunday and Thursday if Man United lose. It just, <laughs> just makes it worse. Um, I, think, I think from my perspective, it's, it's, it's about my relationship with God so I'm not saying that I'm the perfect Christian um, I've got my flaws but there is something about having that space to, to mediate to meditation reflect and, and, and to pray I think there's something around associating myself with people who are positive and that can encourage me either through the, the word of God or through other kind of means like sports, etc. Um, my family is really important to me, so my wife and children are really important, and I try and spend as much time as I possibly can with them, even though two of them have left home, and I can't wait for the other three to go. <laughs> um, I hope they don't see this. I'll, I'll deny it. I'll say it wasn't me. Um, and I think, I think it's just important not to... So I won't watch anything that... I, I avoid things around safeguarding. So books, anything on television. I just try and keep busy and keep my mind away from that. And there are days where I do not 
want to go to work because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be really difficult. It's going to be really complicated. How do I handle this situation? But when you're in the, when I'm in that space, I think it's only prayer that kind of helps, or or speaking to my wife or my best friends because they're the same friendship group I've had from childhood. So I've not changed my friendship group in that sense. And I, and I think sometimes when you, when you listen to people and you listen to their experiences, that kind of motivates you to want to do better and want to get up and go and face the storm. And I always believe that after a storm there should be a calm, you know, and, and I guess it's just that kind of mindset that I try to, to have. And I, it's, it's not easy, I'm human, but you just get up and go, don't you? So saying um, that you try to make the most of sort of non-safeguarding time in order yeah. to... If, you're lo- if the church that you're part of comes to you and says, oh, we need a new designated person for safeguarding for our, our church, would you be saying, someone else can do that, I'll do it nationally? In the same way that, you know, I don't know, if someone's a professional accountant, sometimes the last thing they want to do is be the church treasurer. You know, you just want a different... Mm. I think, to be honest, if my church asks me, I'd most probably do it. Um, because I think it's my contribution, I guess. Um, it, and it's hard to say no to my vicar. <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult guy to say no to. Um, but I think if I was asked, then I would do it. Um, but I've never been asked. Oh, okay. So it's either I'm not very good at what I do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they don't really want me all over their business. Yeah, I was going to say, they don't want you seeing what's going on, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, no, I've, I've not been asked. I, I'm, I'm normally asked to do other things, but not necessarily safeguarding in that sense. Um, let's uh, follow that up a bit. Tell us about some of the things that you do do. What is local church life for you? What brings you joy in your church? So, um, music. I enjoy the, the music. Um, I like it a lot. I think our church has evolved over time, so we've got drums and all sorts, which which is good. I think that fellowship with people that I've known for many years now, I think that's that brings me joy. I think um, the progress we've made as a church, so our vicar had this vision that we were going to build a, a church hall and, and, and going through that process and then finally seeing it, that it's actually something where the community can use. I think I enjoy seeing like the food banks that we've set up and knowing that in the winter there's a place for the homeless to come and stay. Um, and I think you just, you just build those kind of relationships. Um, and it, it's nice to get away from my wife sometimes because she doesn't, she doesn't always come to church all the time. So it's a nice little drive, especially Danny and Twenty. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a family, it's family, you know, and, and that's really important. And we're obviously in the season of Lent now. Just, mm. Is that something that makes any a difference to you? Do you do anything for Lent or stop doing anything for Lent, or does it not make much difference? 
Well, I've, I've struggled in the past with chocolate. So you can see I've got a 10-pack now. So I do try and give up something like chocolate. Um, but one of the things I do try and stick to is I always make a conscious decision to give to those who potentially may not have. So I always make it a, a conscious decision to to give, um, and I do that, and I, and I do that outside of Lent as well. But I, I make a, a really strong effort to do it better <laughs> during this time. Mm. We're going to have opportunity for anybody to ask. Alex, any questions in a minute? I'll just give you a couple of seconds to think about that. Um, you mentioned earlier about the importance of being sustained by the Word of God. Um, do you have any particular parts of the Bible that are sort of your go-tos, favourite bits? We had a Bible study this morning and we had a great time with uh, the Psalms and uh, struggled a bit more in, in Romans. We won't be rushing back to Romans 4 anytime soon. Um, but where are some of you, what are some of the bits that stick with you or that are significant for you? I think some of the bits for me really is, is a lot around kind of forgiveness, you know. Um, and, you know, there's lots of stories that I read in the Bible that I enjoy. Um, and it, it often depends on who I'm talking to as well, you know. Um, but I think for me, there are the, the, the Bible for me is really important, and I think there are just bits around Jesus and how Jesus lived, and you know how prayerful he was, and the healing elements, and you know the Old Testament when they talk about an eye for an eye, two for two kind of thing, and then Jesus comes and says, actually, if someone slaps your left, give them your right. And it was just that compassion stuff in the Bible that kind of helps. Psalms is also important to me because sometimes if I'm struggling with a particular issue, I often will go into Psalms and try and look for something to, to, to read to kind of reassure myself of the Word of God and that so that's kind of my relationship with the Bible in that sense okay so does anyone what questions have you got what do you want to hear Alex talk more about what would you like to ask if not I've got a couple of other questions so it's okay Lana so I'll, re I'll repeat the questions into the microphone afterwards go on go for it Two, hang on, I'll tell you what I'll do. Have this instead. Go for it. Um, my first question is, I guess, like, looking back, we can see the mistakes that we've made in safeguarding, like things that we didn't consider, things we did wrong. Um, and I just, I guess I've been thinking about, like, in 20 years' time, when we look back now at how we're doing safeguarding now, like, what do we think of the things we're going to be like? We didn't, we didn't do that well. We did that wrong, we saw that wrong, like are there things about how we do safeguarding now that you think in 20 years we'll look back on and wish we had done differently? What now? Mm. So if I looked back now, I think there, uh, and we're, we're talking about the Church of England or we're we talking about safeguarding generally? 
to be honest, generally, like, yeah, even yeah. outside of the Church of England, but, but if it's more specific to the Church of England, feel free, yeah. So if I, if I look at it from this perspective, I think there is something for me around early intervention and preventative work. So how, if I look back, I would say, you know, sometimes families do go through difficult times, um, go through challenges, we're all human beings, and sometimes the professional network can, can see that that children or their families are going through challenging times, and it's about, we could have nipped, not nipped, well, I'm going to use that word, nipped in the bud, we could have got in there a lot earlier and prevented things from escalating. I think another thing for me would be around, you know, children coming into care. I think when we look at a lot of children and coming into care, I think there's something about where there missed opportunities for children to be with family, extended family, and did the legislation and the policies affect that, you know, preventing children remaining? I think the other bit for me, I think we've, if I was to look back and I think about children in particular, I think mental health services um, have been poor and continue to be poor and the waiting list is, is, is long. I think the other bit for me is around the narrative of social services. So lots of families potentially may have wanted to go to social services for support, but that stigma and that view of social services being like... Um, Someone said, like a Rottweiler. Once a Rottweiler gets you, if, if a Rottweiler gets your child, you're never going to get it back. That's, that's something they used to say in the olden days. And I don't know if we did enough to reassure the public generally that we are actually here to support and we can't just walk into people's houses and take your children and break up families. I think there's another bit around that balance as well, around including fathers more, because I don't think we've often done that. Um, and I think, you know, fathers do have a role to play in children's lives. And it's about how we, how, how we did that differently. I think when we look at it from a church perspective, I think at times we didn't have the right training, the right policies, the right guidance. We didn't necessarily have the recording system to be able to go back and look at what happened before so we can make a chronology of, of events. I think if we could go back, I think that that power imbalance of when someone that goes to church makes an allegation against, let's say, a bishop, for example, you know, was the young person or the vulnerable adult believed at that time? Why weren't they believed at that time? So instead of going from one extreme to the other, why wasn't there more of a balanced kind of view and investigation into what? What, what, what happened so for me and, and, I, and I think you know um, some victims and survivors have been, been treated not okay and I also think in local authorities some families have not been treated okay you know so I think if I looked back those would be some of the things and one of the most important things is that if you work for social services for example and you, as an employee, 
do not understand the process and the systems, what chance does a family have in, in, that, in that world? And it's quite similar to the church as well. So if I don't understand the systems, or it takes me a long time to get my head around the systems, then what must that be for someone who is, has a complaint you know, about the church, for example? So it's those kind of things. And you had a second question as well, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Go for uh, it. Okay, sorry You've to dominate. The microphone, okay. um, second question is um, what safeguarding issue do you think currently goes like missed or is a bit more hidden than perhaps others and what are the signs that we need to look for to be spotting that safeguarding issue so so one of the things that comes to springs to mind with regards to um, if I look at it in a church context is domestic abuse so domestic abuse for me is I think it's quite a big thing because we recently put out some some data and we've seen an increase in that area. And I think what we saw as well is that two out of seven, it was only two out of seven respondents that said they would know what to do if somebody approached them with domestic abuse. And I think... There's this thing about, you know, like I said, I, I've, I've been going to church for a long time, this particular church, and I've known a lot of people and there, and it's easy to think, you know, this family's a really good family, and that wouldn't happen in that house, and I trust them, but actually you don't know what's going on in people's houses. So there's something about just being that, that kind of curiosity around it, you know, and... Um, you know, in our church, in, ch- in churches now, in Church of England, they've got um, safeguarding Sundays and just making, raising the awareness around that and the uh, uh, parish safeguarding officers being aware of the signs. So I went, where was I yesterday? Um, I was in Chester yesterday and I was talking to someone and they were saying that um, for domestic abuse, what they've done in their church is like they've, in the toilets, they've just put, um, signs at the back of the door to say, you know, if this is happening to you, these are the places you might want to, you know, consider to get some help from. So domestic abuse really does stand out for me at the moment, and because I, I, I think in the church we're, well, I think we're actually under-reporting um, because even with COVID nineteen, um, the pandemic, lots of um, agencies were saying that was one of the massive increases that they saw, and it feels a bit like a taboo subject at times. Has anyone else got a question? Andrew, might have a question. Yeah, do pass it forward. Thank you. I was just wondering um, what was it about this present role that made you, if I understand right, leave social services and take on this new role? What is it about this present role that attracted you to it? So, to be honest, you know, I, I just think it was God's because I wasn't, I wasn't looking for this role. It wasn't in my mind. It wasn't something I wanted to do. For me, my DNA was local authority work and there was no other life outside of that. So, I got a call 
um, from a headhunter saying, you know, your name's been bandied about, you know, what do you want to do? And at the same time, I had three other calls for within local authorities, quite senior roles. And believe it or not, so started to kind of reflect on it, to pray on it, and, you know, um, there was some times at night when I was still and I was just calm and I, I just heard, you know, I need you to do this. I need you to go there. I need you to do this. I need you to go there. So I talked it over with the boss, with the boss lady. We had a, a conversation about it and uh, we, we thought about it and we prayed over it. And um, it was interesting in the sense that I'd, I'd never, ever thought about working for the church in that sense. I was just a guy that went to church on a Sunday, um, did little bits and bobs as requested, sat on the PCC when, 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 when needed. And um, the more I got to get into it, I, I got to see that actually, you know, it was national in that sense. It was a lot bigger brief. Um, when I read some of the previous, you know, um, some of the previous cases that had happened, I was like, wow, this kind of happens in church. Maybe I've been a little bit oblivious to it. Um, when I started to talk to people about the church and the journey that they were embarking on or they'd been on, I just felt, yeah, why not? You know, let me go and see if I can make a, a difference. So that's how it kind of, I, I kind of, if anything goes wrong, I blame him. <laughs> but that's that's the kind of mindset it was to, to get there. But that's a really good question, actually. As was your questions as well. Yeah. Obviously, obviously, they were. Nicely done. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> Karen's got a question. Would you, would you mind, Andrew, taking it to Karen? Is that all? Thank you. Maybe not so much question as a reflection as such that safeguarding crosses the whole of the all age groups. So it's cradle to grave in many ways. And having spent most of my working life in adult social care rather than children's social care, I'm very, you know, keen that we acknowledge the risk and vulnerability of our older adults or people with disabilities or people suffering with ill health. Um, because I think sometimes, and we've had these conversations here looking at our safeguarding policy, the danger is that we focus on children and young people because obviously they are very vulnerable, they're very key, they come across our doorstep day in, day out. Um, but it's some of those other more vulnerable age groups that also we need to be mindful of and we need to reflect on what their needs. I just wonder, do I assume that your role with the Church of England covers both children and adults, or do you have a sort of, is it more leaning towards one of those areas? No, because that, that was actually um, another part of the um, taking the role as well, because it, it covered all, age, all ages and all age groups. And I guess the reason I've been focusing or talking about children a bit is because a lot of the victims and survivors we see now are not young people. Um, so there was something about the kind of preventative stuff, but there is also a lot of work around um, adults in that sense and how we support them, how we make sure that they're not being exploited 
as well. Um, and I guess when we talk about the domestic abuse element as well, because um, I'm aware from a previous life of an elderly uh, lady who was actually being um, assaulted by her son. He was taking her money. Um, and when she'd go to church, people didn't necessarily uh, know what was going on. But at some point, um, I think somebody who'd known them for some years kind of knew something was not quite quite right. So when, because we've got a, a development training team, so when they look at our policies, our guidance and training, we have it from all ages. And actually one of the things we haven't done believe it or not, we haven't, we're only starting to do some of the work around the voice of children because we focused on adults so much. So it's only now we're starting to do that piece of work now. So if you ask a question, you also have to pass the microphone. Thank you. I think it was just prompted from your, some of your last things that you're saying um, and I work at a university and one of the big areas we're looking at is when to raise that safeguarding alert for um, over 18s who are deemed adults and uh, we're not really meant to contact parents or the support network out of that without their permission but a lot of the tutors see sort of real safeguarding issues and there's been a big case in Bristol with uh, suicide from a student and the parents saying <coughs> if only we'd known you know, we could have intervened and helped, and yet there's that fine line between crossing the line between reporting safeguarding and respecting the sort of data confidentiality that we have to look after. So I was just thinking in terms of church-wise, how would you recommend we, if we spot something, if we see something, if we're concerned about something, where do we go with that and what kind of responses should we have, particularly maybe talking about domestic abuse or something else that we spot, where do we go and what line do we need to look at in terms of raising something? Okay, that's a good question, that's a really good question. Um, so from my, from my perspective, and the message I've always said is that safeguarding for me trumps, trumps everything. So if I feel someone is at risk of significant harm, that safeguarding trumps any anything around GDPR, any of that stuff for me, because the fallout of someone's hurting themselves is greater than the GDPR, and I think it, it's clear that safeguarding trumps in that, that kind of perspective. I think when you're working with uh, young people in that sense, I think there is a bit of a gap there. Um, and, I, and, I, and I've seen it in, in many places in a sense that when young people hit 18, they're considered to be adults, you know, so therefore they're entitled, they're, they're treated like adults. You know, my 28-year-old, you would say is an adult, but even for some of the basic stuff, she still phones me, Dad, what, what, what am I doing here, kind of thing. So I think there is definitely a gap there, but I think... In the church, we have um, designated safeguarding officers. So 
what people would do if they were unsure. They would normally have the conversation with them in the first instance to run it to run it by them, just to say, look, I'm a little bit worried about you know this what's going on. What do you think I should do? Because the thing, so that's one bit there that we have. I guess the other bit as well is around domestic abuse. It's just about, for me, I think it's one of those ones you just have to be curious enough. You can ask people what's 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 going on. You know, they may disclose, they may not disclose. If they do disclose, you need to know where to refer them on to. So you need to know, you know, the organisations that potentially could help them to navigate the domestic abuse, for example. It takes many, many years for people to A, recognize that the relationship is, a, is an abusive relationship. Then it can take them many, many years to, to build up the courage to be able to, to, to leave. I think if you work in um, a kind of university kind of you know, if, you, if, if you're working in that way, um, I, I would say, for me, when in doubt, always try and try, if you can, speak to um, the local authority to see, you know, have an off-the-record kind of conversation to say, look, I'm kind of thinking this way. What, what do you suggest? And nine times out of ten, they will give you some good advice about how to, to navigate it and how, how, how to do it. But you're right, when they hit 18, it does become... Um, uh, tricky at times. Got time for one or two more. Tim. Um, you mentioned earlier um, the difference of the complexity of the Anglican of Church of England um, compared to local authority. Uh, is there anything else that is really different, especially with regard to a biblical? Perspective of what you do and how that directs you. I think I think there's nothing the same. It is two different worlds. Um, I think this is the, the, the working for the church, for example, even something like this, going to a meeting and someone saying, "Shall we start with prayer? Shall we end with prayer?" You're not getting that in a local authority. It's not, it's not, it's not going to happen. I think the other bit as well is where it's different is, is so in a local authority, you know, you have your leader of your council, you have your chief exec who can make a lot of decisions. Yes, they have to go to various committees, but a lot of the time if the chief exec says something that's happening operational, it, it will happen, you know. And that's what I was saying, I think at the beginning, I was saying this kind of command and control kind of, kind of thing. But in the church, there's a lot of governance that you have to go through. So I think, um, well, you've got, you've got parliament that passes law, and then you've got synod that passes law, you know. Um, you've got archbishop council, you know, that make decisions. We've got the National um, Safeguarding Steering Group that can make decisions. You know, there, there's... The governance is very different, so sometimes it can take a long time to get things things through, which is not always the case in a local authority. So in a local authority, I could say, okay, that policy is no good whatsoever, and we're going to do a new one, and I want it in two weeks' time, 
and I want it to go live and you're going to share it with staff, you're going to share it with partners, you're going to share it with children, young people and their, their families. And it'll be, yes, Alex, no problem, I'll get it done. But in the church, if you're changing policies, because remember, these policies are national as well, so they, you, you'd have to go through a lot of consultation process. It's a very, very different world, very different world. Lee, is, is there anything that you draw on from the Bible to promote, encourage, direct um, those thoughts and those ideas? <laughs> I think from my mind, sometimes I, I just get through by saying, well, Alex, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar. Because sometimes it's just a very difficult thing to navigate. But I think once you make peace with once you make, once I make peace with that within myself, that I've got to dance to this tune here and I've got to give this there, I think to some extent I, I do make peace with it in that in that sense. But that's that is a word that that's a word that is constantly in my in my head, constantly in my head. Um, Alex. One of the things which I'm always intrigued by when I go to something like the Christian Resources Exhibition, right, is some of the outfits, mm-hmm. okay? And I, I'm not allowed to come back with vestments because that's not what we do, mm-hmm. right? Um, is, is, do, you, you know, do you get to go to meetings in a special outfit at any point? Do you have a, a hat you get to wear? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You see, you're always thinking, what a stupid question. But if there was, you'd have wanted to know. That would have been yeah. a scoop right no, here. No, yeah, no, yeah. No. Um, brilliant. My last question, um, and then I'm sure if you've got anything you wanted to ask or chat to Alex about that we haven't covered all together, that you can do that once you finish. But what can we pray for you at the moment? I think for me there's there's something about wisdom um, and there's something about resilience and there's something about just remembering to treat everybody with empathy, compassion and respect. I think those are the, the key things I would say people are praying for me for. Those would be the things that would be important to, to pray for. Be alright if we prayed for you now? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. Loving God, we thank you for bringing us safely together this evening. And Lord, we thank you for bringing Alex safely to us from Ashford as well. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you've uh, led him into this new role. And Lord, as he continues to serve you and uh, your church across the country, we ask that you would bless him with great wisdom. Lord, would you help him to know when to push, when not to push? Would you help him to know, uh, Lord, the right way to get things done that need to be done? Would you continue to fill him with your Holy Spirit so that he may offer that compassion and that competence to all the people that he meets? Lord, bless him and his family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank, Thanks, thank you. you for coming thank away from Kent to share thank with you. us. It's fascinating yeah. what you're doing, and uh, we really appreciate you being 
open and uh, with us tonight. Let's uh, say thank you to Alex. Thank you. Thank you.